Good morning. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> good, yeah. Yes, very much good morning for you. Good evening for us. And yeah, the, um, you know, I just got to share the Twitter notification as well. I just shared, but I'll share again. Why not? Um, by the way, how is the sound? I will confess I am parked in Truckee on the way to Nevada and I'm inside the Tesla and it defaulted to the mic. And so can, can you hear me clearly? I hear you amazingly well, and I'm wow. jealous that you're going to Truckee and maybe skiing. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I'm well. I, I'm in Truckee. This is my my usual charging stop on the way to the desert. I'm actually not a big skier, and I don't think it's ski season yet. I do not see any snow on the ground, but I, I'm sure very soon it, it it will be. It it is a beautiful part of the world. So, Michael, wait. So you speak with an English accent. So you, I, wait. Hold on. But that's right. You made Aliyah. So you were actually born and raised American. Well, maybe I should. Maybe you should just do the full intro rather than me diving into the details of your bio that I, that I wanted to hear about. Sure. You know, it's a little bit like that uh, old cartoon from the New Yorker on the Internet. Nobody knows you're a dog. So I guess you didn't know I was American from all our text correspondence. But I, uh, I grew up in the United States. I grew up in New York, raised uh, in Manhattan, uh, born, uh, like I said, there. And then I finished college in New York and then moved to Israel in 1993, which now gives away my age. And I'm 50, living in Jerusalem today. Well, that I knew that you were living in Jerusalem because you mentioned that you were commuting to Tel Aviv, which seems like a long drive. Having done that drive myself, however, in a little Sharut, these little buses that you used to take in Israel and probably still exist. Um, but okay, but before we get into your into your into your commute, so okay, so you were born and raised in the United States, but but um, I mean, obviously, Judaism is a little central to this conversation. So you, were you raised Orthodox or did you later become more observant in, in life? No, I was raised uh, Orthodox uh, in New York, uh, long line of Orthodox people. My great grandfather was actually a well-known rabbi. Um, my grandparents uh, were both business people, but everyone Orthodox. My father is an ordained rabbi as well. Wow. OK, so. I mean, this is relevant in case people are wondering, um, not just because of the Jewish Jewish strains of this conversation, but because the book in question, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, is this interesting juxtaposition of Torah, right, which, you know, is a two to three thousand year old document with a lot of the debates of everyday life, whether it be venture capitalism, just modern societal questions like UBI. Um, and so Judaism is definitely germane germane to your book and so i guess what's interesting is that um well i guess your own life is like a is a version of the book in the sense that you're an orthodox observant jew but also a very successful venture capitalist not that those are actually antithetical in any way but you don't necessarily like well similar to the themes of your book you don't necessarily see those juxtaposed um so commonly well i guess early in my career i used to uh joke that i was one of the few people uh if anybody else wore a yarmulke at all these tech events, uh, <laughs> going back a long way, <clears throat> I guess in the context of uh, our motto at my current uh, venture firm, Aleph, different is better than better. I guess that made me stand out somewhat. Um, but no, I don't think they're antithetical at all. Quite the contrary. I think, uh, you know, the venture business in general is about being different and thinking uh, out of the box. And I think there's something about uh, being a minority uh, or different uh, in the context of the of the landscape that certainly was in the mid-90s when I got into the venture capital business. 
that's helpful to thinking about things and uh, uh, and not always having to follow let's call it the uh, social or, or bonton or herd mentality of the day. Um, I think that's valuable. No, interesting mentioning wearing the yarmulke. I I mean I so I think everyone who subscribes to pull request probably knows, but yeah, I'm in the in this conversion process which is like never ending, kind of like my PhD was. But hopefully it'll come to a more <laughs> a more firm conclusion. Um, but I, I've often also worn. I mean I, I'm probably I'm sure I'm not as observant as you are, but I, I do wear the the keepa occasionally, um, and it definitely produces an effect. I mean at least in the sort of very secular Silicon Valley tech worlds, right? Because it's, yeah, it, it's a statement of a certain position that, as you said, is is a minority one and, you know, fairly unusual um, in many ways. You know, I, I, I never thought about it as kind of uh, being unusual in any way. It's just who I am. I think in general, we do a lot better as, uh, as a society if people were who they were and we respected them for it. And uh, I've, I've never found anything other than that. And, uh, you know, one of the things I love about Silicon Valley was that people were super accepting, at least uh, in the Valley parts that I grew up in. I understand things have changed over the last couple of years in some places, but uh, I haven't been back in a couple of years because of the because of the pandemic. But, you know, I, I've always found Silicon Valley, I always did find Silicon Valley super accepting and, and really interested more than anything else. Uh, no, well, I think you're right. But I think, well... I mean, it's a bigger conversation. We can get into it if you want, but I, I definitely think it probably makes more of a statement these days. I mean, certainly I think being Jewish in the U.S. these days in the sort of elite blue state spheres um, has certain political implications to, <laughs> to it. Not that I've, I've personally felt it myself, but um, anyhow, that, 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 that's a whole rabbit hole we can choose to go down. But I don't want to I don't want to go down that rabbit hole and not talk about your book first. Um, so so maybe I don't. Do you want to maybe sure. you know just talk about what compelled? Because you know VCs writing books, it's not unheard of. In fact, I see that David Sachs, who um, is a VC and is involved with Colin and has also written a book, is in the audience. Um, so it's it's certainly it's certainly not unprecedented, but it's slightly unusual. And but but of course you had a writing credit even before this. So I'm curious what what motivated you to write this book in particular right now. Yeah, glad David Sachs is here. I really enjoy a lot of the things that he writes. Um, so I actually didn't sit down and write a book. I, I, I've written five in Hebrew and two of them have been translated to English, uh, even though English is my native tongue. And this is the second translated to English. And, and I, what I sat down to do, actually, these were, these were conversations around the Sabbath table with my children that I ended up turning into notes. And the notes turned into like a WhatsApp group of missives on Friday afternoon uh, every week in, in, in Judaism. You read a, a portion of the Torah of the Bible every Sabbath. And I would send out before that Sabbath kind of a missive of about eight to 10 pages uh, on a topic of the day that was related to the weekly Torah portion. And someone said, you know, turn this into a book. And then the book, quite surprisingly, did well in Hebrew, um, not in an orthodox or religious audience necessarily, but actually in a technology audience, an investor audience and a broad audience. And, you know, found its way to the top, uh, top maybe, I think, of the first one, even of the, of the bestseller list in, in Israel. And I was shocked. And then someone said, you really want to translate this to English and uh, hence launched the book, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, uh, which is this book. And it's done it's done pretty well. And I, what I found is uh, I did a tour of college campuses last week. I was in Harvard and MIT and and, and Penn Wharton and, and Emory and NYU and a bunch of other places that there's real interest 
in this notion of, of timeless values, you know, you mentioned a few thousand years old, uh, values that have stood the test of time or principles, as I prefer to say, call them, that have stood the test of time and how they can apply to modern life. And I think a lot of that is because so much has become fluid in modern life that people are looking for anchors, uh, looking for timeless wisdom in this kind of in these kind of swirling tides of modern society um, where, where everything seems to be negotiable. And uh, it's found a real audience. I mean, I, I, I've been shocked by it candidly. So let, let me, so for those, I mean, there, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of non-Jews listening. So ju- just to understand how your book is structured, what, what you refer to obliquely is, um, you know, the, the weekly, uh, what's called the Parashat uh, reading, which is, uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, the Torah, the first five books of the, what Christians would call the Old Testament, um, is, you know, a continuous scroll, but readings from it are divided over the, I'm not even sure how many weeks are in the lunar calendar, actually. Michael, it's not 52, probably. It's probably, but some number around 50 or so are the individual readings. It depends on the year. Oh. It depends on the year, because we have leap years. Oh, and So we had a 13th month in some years, so it's complicated. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> yes. No, the Jewish calendar is definitely complicated. Uh, it's more, more complicated than the solar calendar. So there, there's a number of readings, you know, whatever, you know, 40 plus readings a year and they form the sort of recurring readings every every shabbat every saturday right and you know at, at the end of the year there's a beautiful a beautiful ritual called simat torah which uh was i think in late october this year i i was at it and um it's when you kind of re you you finish the reading of the scroll and you immediately restart at uh Bereshit, I, at, at genesis and the whole cycle begins again right and you you Right, and you and you parade with the Torah That's in a very joyful way, and it's one of the few Jewish holidays that doesn't commemorate a sort of religious, um, you know, commandment nor a historical event. It was just sort of invented by the Jews as a sort of joy of the Torah. So anyhow, the book is organized by the by the same method, right? And that you don't quite have as many chapters as there are parashas in the year, but uh, but it's it's the same idea that you take a certain reading, and in the same way that you do in the Shabbat, you you know, it, it takes a particular story, say. I don't know, um, you know, Jacob and Esau, for example, or no, or no, no. the inventor, the inventor, right, exactly. Esau, right. and, and you do a deep reading of that. And so I, I'll shut up there, just, but I just wanted to frame how you framed your book so people would understand how it is that you're mixing the sort of Jewish way of dividing time and reading with your own lessons about, about life. Yeah, so the book actually is, is going to be in five volumes corresponding to the five books of Moses. The Tree of Life and Prosperity is the first volume on Genesis. Uh, in Hebrew, I've already put out uh, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, the first three of the uh, of the five books of Moses. And um, uh, and so Exodus is coming next in, in, in English. And it is organized the way you said it, right, which is by the weekly portion, which is the way uh, Jews read it throughout the year. Um, and I do, to your point, a deep dive on a given character or story based on the textual analysis um, of what is going on uh, in, in that portion. And so, you know, just to use an example um, that I think modern ears uh, would understand really well, because everyone knows the story of Noah, right? And you always ask people, who's Noah? Well, Noah invented the ark. Um, turns out that Noah is not just, uh, or he made the ark, he built the ark. Uh, and he saved humanity from the flood. It turns out that Noah didn't just make the ark, but there are bookending stories to the ark story. Uh, one is about uh, Noah inventing the plow, and the second is about Noah inventing uh, wine or chemistry or fermentation. Um, <clears throat> and Noah 
just to deep dive on this for half a second, uh, in Noah's uh, time or, or prior to Noah, there was what I would call a Thomas Malthus of then. There are always Thomas Malthuses, by the way. People think humanity is ending from some sort of Malthusian trap. There's not enough food to feed humanity. People are having too many kids. Uh, recently, for those following Maureen Dowd's uh, Apocalypse Now article, if you read through the comments there, you saw a lot of Thomas Malthuses uh, running around. The world is ending. Uh, we're still here, by the way. Um, and uh, Noah had an ancestor uh, kind of five generations before. His name was Jared. Yared in Hebrew, and Yared means going down, like the world is going down. And people stopped having children at young ages. They started to kind of have children later and less children, it seems, because he thought that the the earth couldn't feed humanity. And then Noah comes along, and he's the first person the Bible tells us has three children. Um, and by what did he do? He unleashes the prosperity of the earth. That's why he's called Noah, which is Noah in Hebrew, which means comforting. He comforts the land. That's what the verse says, and makes it bring forth its prosperity. And he kind of uncorks and unleashes this prosperity. And then out of prosperity, humanity destroys itself, and the flood comes. And so Noah is kind of the first guy to print called dual-use technology. Uh, an invention that helps prosperity, but at the same time destroys humanity. And the same thing happens when he invents wine, which is an important invention. By the way, still today, after floods, we have problems with clean water. And alcohol or wine was the water of the ancients because it was clean. And so no one invents wine, and then he gets drunk. And we all know that wine is good when used in moderation. It's really bad when it's overused. And so he gets drunk in his tent, and he's abused by his youngest son, Hum. Um, and so here again, we have no inventing something that's really needed and necessary for humanity and even good for humanity, but he misuses it and it goes bad. And I think this is a general lesson for some of the technologies of today. Technology is neutral at the end of the day and important in moving the world forward and unleashing prosperity or inventing clean water or a million other things. But we got to have timeless principles around it. Otherwise, it goes bad like it did in the time of Noah. Right. And, I, you know, it's funny, I was reading the story and I'm fairly well, well versed in the Torah, but I, I hadn't. I completely forgotten the plow and the wine story. And I was like, wow, we have, we have no to thank for wine. What an amazing, um, what an amazing character. I felt glad I named my son Noah, actually, but, but mostly because he was a boat builder. Um, but I, you know, I, I felt very <laughs> glad about the decision. Um, but, but in any case, it's funny, I, again, it was, it's as, as is throughout your book, you make a lot of interesting connections. Again, you kind of tie their entrepreneurship of almost like Silicon Valley, to Noah, which I thought was interesting. And by the way, I, I now it makes sense, by the way. I was like, wow, he ended really early in the Torah with his 12th chapter. <laughs> now I realize his other book's coming. So um, I, it, it's fascinating. Wait, so are you going through all the way Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well? I did, yeah. I'm actually uh, done with the basic writing of all five books of uh, Moses. It's uh, num Numbers is in editing right now. It should be out in Hebrew in, uh, in March, April. Um, and Exodus should be out in English, I hope, uh, uh, you know, around the fall of next year. It takes, for some reason, it takes much longer to publish books in the United States than it does in Israel. I'm not sure why that's the case. And it's harder to print books in the United States, particularly post-COVID. There seems to be a shortage of book printers. So uh, things take longer. Interesting. So I, I'm so impressed. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to steal your thunder, but I'm so impressed that you managed to write, you know, or write sort of narrative <clears throat> connections between the book of Numbers and modern life, because... As you go later in the Torah, right, like a lot of the stories, the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, are so good, right? It's full of, the, you know, the, the, the narratives that have characterized all of Western civilization, right? But, you know, you start getting into some parts of, like, Numbers and Leviticus, and it, I don't know, it gets, it gets a little dry in there, <laughs> at least in my reading of it. So, 
So I think you're right, by the way. You know, ironically, I think the best book I wrote so far was Leviticus, but it's the worst selling book because I think Leviticus is foreboding. It's like animal sacrifice and this, that, the other. Um, but I think if you read it carefully, what it actually is a blueprint for what I call the empowerment economy, um, which is very relevant to modern times, uh, <clears throat> which is how do we create an economy in which people are not only incentivized, but encouraged through trust building mechanisms and through educational mechanisms to empower other people to become successful. It is, in my view, a almost a missive against redistributive economics um, and instead asking us how do we uh, um, both encourage society to think that we can all become more prosperous and second of all, what are the symbols and rituals that encourage uh, that approach, uh, both by those who have done well in society and through commerce uh, in it. And then the numbers the book, um, spends a lot of time uh, analyzing uh, two two issues. One is the difference between risk and uncertainty. Being in the desert is certainly an uncertain adventure. adventure. And the second thing, it asks, how do you build uh, a bureaucracy, a civic society, and why was it built outside the land of Israel before the people came in? And I spent a lot of time on, uh, on civil servants, uh, the American model, the Singaporean model, the Israeli model, and the biblical model. Um, and, and how we get there, because the Levites in the Bible are the civil servants, and they have a set of responsibilities and expectations that I think we've kind of lost in modern society um, from civil servants, and candidly, they've lost of themselves. It, that's fascinating. So the, the Levites, for getting, who those aren't familiar, are sort of the priestly caste, right, who are responsible for carrying the ark around, among other specialized tasks. So it, it's 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 fascinating again that you're drawing this parallel between biblical times and now. Um, huh. Yeah. By the way, the Levites were also the teachers and the organization of the teachers. They were also, uh, for what it's worth, uh, the prisoner. You know, the people who kept the prisoners at the time. It's there's a lot to talk about about judicial reform there, <clears throat> as well. Um, they were responsible for that, and they were supposed to be a good example rather than a jailer. And so there's a huge amount of parallels, by the way, to modern times. There's there's a famous statement of uh, the grandson of Rashi. Rashi is perhaps the greatest biblical commentator of all time. He lived in uh, in the 10 hundreds, um, lived for about 65 years, and he wrote a commentary on the entire Bible and the entire Talmud uh, and many other things, and was a winemaker, by the way. And um, his grandson uh, once said that, that there are... Uh, descriptions or understandings of the Bible that are regenerated anew uh, every day. And I think sometimes it takes a different time, a different society to understand verses in, in the Bible. And I think we've reached that time for what it's worth. Well, I mean, that, that to me is one of the miraculous things of Judaism, that it's um, able to draw so much modern meaning from ancient texts and ancient practices, which, and it, I mean, this is pulling back to the 30,000 foot view, but it's, Amazing how Jews, on the one hand, um, you know, maintain their religion and, and their faith and their practices in, in such a steadfast way, but at the same time adapt it to, you know, modern certain, like just today, for so today is the first night of Hanukkah, probably your second night, I guess, and um, one of the Talmudic um, sort of prescriptions is to is to publicize the miracle, which means that you you put the, the Hanukkah or the menorah in the window and actually put it on display. Um, and that's that's mentioned in the Talmud and, you know, almost as a half joke, but actually kind of serious. I tweeted today, if I tweet a photo of the Hanukkah, does that mean 
I, I've complied with the mitzvah. And the head of social for Chabad chimed in and said, yes, actually, you do. Yes, you can just take a photo of the Hanukkah and tweet it, and you've, you've satisfied the mitzvah. Um, so anyhow, it's just, it's, it's amazing to me yeah. that those exist. You know, I don't know if we have people on from San Francisco now, but I was actually thinking of, of Hanukkah uh, and, and the candles over the last couple of days because of what's been going on with San Francisco education. So... One of the things people don't know about Hanukkah, because, by the way, everyone takes pictures today, is the Talmudic requirement to light a candle is you only light one candle every night of Hanukkah. Eight nights of Hanukkah, you light one candle. That's the base commandment. Uh, and, 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 but today, we light one candle for each day. And that is described in the Talmud as the extraordinary of the extraordinary, meaning that is the best, best way to fulfill the commandment, to actually signify each day as an ascending uh, statement of of, of change um, through a different amount of candles. And I once had a rabbi, his name was Rabbi Rosenzweig, many years ago, who said, you know, why on Hanukkah of all uh, of all holidays do we go after the extraordinary of the extraordinary, the absolute best way to keep this commandment? And he said, because the nature of Hellenism, which which Hanukkah combats, is what he called institutionalized mediocrity. Um, and that what the Hellenists were after is that kind of everyone would be the same, will institutionalize this mediocrity in society. And, and Judaism is a protest against institutionalized mediocrity. And I've been thinking about that a lot with a lot of discussion going around around the, the San Francisco school system and removing excellence from it. And uh, that Hanukkah should stand in, in, in stark contrast and a protest to this notion that will institutionalize mediocrity instead of striving for excellence uh, and doing the best of the best. Well, <laughs> well, once again, Michael, that's an amazing leap. I mean, just as a brief summary, it might be worth summarizing uh, the Hanukkah story and the Maccabees uh, very briefly, uh, because the whole assimilation in Athens versus Jerusalem and the Hellenists, um, you know, versus the fervent Jews may, may not be apparent to everyone. I, I'm happy to go ahead, or if you want to go ahead, maybe just give a very brief summary of that story um, to set up the sort of... Yeah, why why'd you start? I'll chime in. Oh, okay, so so okay. Um, God, how did <laughs> how to do this briefly? So it, it's funny. It's it's one of the later Jewish events, just in terms of actual documented time. It was the mid third century, and um, the the contrast here is under the Seleucid Empire. So this is um, as most people probably know. After Alexander the Great, his empire was broken into his various lieutenants, and the part that we now call Israel, right? Um, fell under one particular subset of that empire. And uh, the, the main part of the story here, okay, is that the Jews who were living in, you know, Judah or Judea, the land of Israel at the time, were assimilating into what was the macro Greek culture, right? And, and Greco-Roman culture for centuries was dominant. Specifically, Greek culture was sort of the elite, um, you know, it's supposedly intellectual culture at the time, right? And Jews were doing everything from not being circumcised so that they could exercise in the gymnasium to not doing proper sacrifices in the temple because the temple, of course, still existed. And the Judah Maccabea, the, 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 or the Hasmoneans revolted against that. And it, to be clear, it was, it was a bloody violent revolt. It was not, you know, it was not a tweet, a Twitter war. It wasn't peaceful. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it was definitely not peaceful. We're talking tens of thousands of casualties at the end of it. And it was specifically kind of a civil war, right? In the sense that it it was assimilated Jews versus versus non Jews that refused to assimilate, right? And um 
so in that sense, it's a contrast between traditional observance and the sort of fashionable secularism of the time. And of course, in the U.S., I mean, there's a whole American angle to this, which of course you're familiar with. But I tweeted a quote from the, the Book mm -hmm. of Maccabees today, and somebody chimed in saying, oh, it's only an American thing, which isn't really true, but it's partly true in the sense that the way that the calendars go, it tends to fall around Christmas. And so American Jews, because the holiday is about assimilation, had it be this sort of counterfoil to Christmas, right? It's like the Jewish holiday around Christmas that you celebrate instead. Um, and so they made it into that, even though, of course, it's strictly speaking, not one of the Jewish high holidays. But uh, anyway, I'll shut up there, as I'm sure I'm, I'm, you have more to say about it than I do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, your point about the lack of circumcision, they didn't let them learn the Bible at the time. It was it was in a what I would call a, a lowest common denominator assimilated culture uh, on some level uh, for all different people. Um, and it, it what I would say is disrespected um, tribalism. I, for what it's worth, I, uh, in my introduction to my book on Leviticus, I'm actually a big believer in what I call respectful tribalism, um, which is people aren't all the same and, and, and tribalism is important. It's how we create community to enable people to be resilient. And community is a very important part of resilience. And and rituals, which are important in, in, in tribes, are, are, are ways to bond uh, around that to enable you to help out people in their, in their time of need. And uh, the Hellenism of the time uh, disrespected that. And so the Maccabees rise up and say, we, we, you know, if you water everything down um, and become a mediocristan, to borrow from Nassim Taleb, uh, and become mediocristan, so nothing stands out and nothing can move forward because we're all trying to converge on a lowest common denominator. And uh, that's what I think happened to Holiday. And, and, and so they rose up, and to your point, it was violent, both against the uh, sympathizers, the Jewish sympathizers to the Greeks and, and the Seleucid Empire. Um, by the way, from a timing perspective, I, I, the story happens, it, it becomes commemorated later, to your point, in the Talmud, but the story happens uh, in the first and second century uh, BCE, right? So around the time of, you know, 130, 140 BC. And, um, uh, you know, Hanukkah is still kept today and was kept throughout uh, the generations. And I think it's it's not an accident that it's a popular holiday. First of all, it doesn't require you to stop working like many of the other Jewish holidays do, which I think makes it easier. But two, it's really a story of triumph of um, uh, ideas uh, as a way to galvanize the people um, in a way that, you know, we don't we don't have that much in modern times, and I think it's a really powerful story in that way. Right, no, it's, it's a powerful story. It's funny. Uh, part of my thread was about how, like, it's funny. I, I actually posted a quote from the Book of Maccabees, which is actually not part of the Hebrew Bible, which is kind of right. co contradictory in a sense. It's actually it's, it's not part of the Catholic Bible either. It's part of the Protestant Bible of all things. But uh, there, there's a bunch of reasons and, and and debates as to why it's not part of the Hebrew Bible. But but I think one thing you touch on, Michael, is that in addition to the sort of assimilation thing, right, one of the tensions I find inside Judaism, well, and inside the world right now, speaking of joining, you know, Jewish conversations with sort of more secular mainstream ones, is the the tension between globalism and particularism, right? Like we live in a very universalist globalist society in which the tribalism of which you're discussing is sort of a priori kind of problematic, right? And I think what you're getting at um, 
and, and, and I think a lot of Jews have espoused this, whether it be uh, Moshe Kopel or whether it be Yoram Hazoni in various forms, which is a form of respectful nationalism or tribalism whereby, I mean, there's rules, right? There isn't necessarily ethnic chauvinism per se or bigotry per se, but, but there is a feeling of like, we are these, this tribe or nation that belongs, which of course, if you define a set of people, you define the set of people who are not part of that nation, right? And I think that's, um, yeah, I mean, these days, that sort of sits in contrast with with the sort of mainstream universalism. I'm trying to be diplomatic here, <laughs> but I think you you probably get what I mean. <laughs> I, I do. You know, I, I was having a conversation with, with an Indian friend of mine recently. Uh, who I love dealing with he's, uh, he's in India. We had this fascinating conversation around. Um, uh, he's very proudly uh, Hindu, and um, I said to him, uh, "Tell me how that you know." expresses itself you know it's it, and it's who his cohort of friends are and it's the rituals he understands um but that doesn't preclude someone from reaching across the ocean or you know across the fence and having a conversation with somebody respectfully and you know respecting their traditions and i i think that's super valuable and I, but what, what ends up happening when we try to uh um how should i say this to use your term to go too universalist is we actually erase people's identity and an identity is actually a core need a need to belong to something that is greater than ourselves is a core human need. And I think by the way, sometimes it brings out the worst in people, but most often it brings out the best in people. And, um, it's sometimes we have multiple tribal affiliations on different levels, but fundamentally people want to be part of something and that needs to be, uh, respected. And uh, needs to be acknowledged and uh, mutually acknowledged, and you know that that's kind of the way I think about it. You know, the erasing thing is interesting because you know I, you know I, <laughs> I was my parents were Cuban exiles. We fled Cuba. I was raised in Miami, in what was locally not a minority culture. On the contrary, it was a very majority sort of culture. But then once you leave that little bubble, you spend. And you know, this is true in in, in many aspects, right? If you, you know, you can be. Jewish here or Indian there and in your little area, because this is, you know, this is a pluralistic democracy like the United States, you know, <laughs> you're in your comfortable bubble and you leave it. It's like, oh, my God, I'm a, I'm a minority. And then you realize that, like, yeah, too much universalism, like, oh, let's all get along and celebrate each other's holidays. Like, no, I mean, there's again, for, for, for X to be meaningful, i.e. you are part of X. There's part of people who are not X. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's exclusionary or sort of antagonistic in a way, but it's, yeah, I think, yeah, this sort of touchy-feely kumbaya universalism just ends up, like, bleaching and, like, deleting everything. <laughs> like, there's no real feeling there. And I think only old-school liberalism, right, which I'm distinguishing from, like, contemporary liberalism, in which it's like, well, there, you know, there's many, asked, you know, there's many tribes within this overarching rubric of mutual respect and tolerance, and then that's it. Everyone does their own thing. But like no one's forced to acknowledge or or sort of engage with this other tribe's thing because it's just as long as you, you know, follow the rules and follow the covenant, so to speak, of the United States of America, it's fine. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Right. But no one's really in some sense, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It, and it's somehow that 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 notion of liberalism or diversity is kind of it's kind of disappeared, I think. <laughs> Well, it's alive and well in Israel on some levels, oh, yeah. so, uh, or much more so. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I wouldn't even call what's going on now liberalism, but uh, we can we can debate the, the moniker at a different time. Well, hold on. So, 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 
fixing on that for a second, Michael, because I spent time in Israel. I'm not a bunch of Israelis. Not that I know it that well. Though I'll, I'll be in Israel early next year, by the way. And I think you know that. But so you mentioned the diversity in Israel. I, I hope they let you in, given what's going on now. No, I saw that. I know. I know. I, I, I saw that news and I, I texted it to my editor saying, oh, shit, I think they're closing the, the border again. But I, I assume it'll open as soon as the Omicron or whatever variant uh, fades. But the, the one thing you mentioned, which I think is interesting, that I think most people outside of Israel, certainly those who are anti-Zionist don't realize, is that Israel is kind of like the United States in that it's incredibly pluralistic and diverse, even though it's, in theory, the Jewish state. Judaism means many things and many colors and many types and many everything. And so maybe describe that a little bit, because my first impression, just as a random personal anecdote, this is 2005, which is a while ago, but I was in Israel, I was walking around Tel Aviv, and I'm like, man, this feels like Latin America. It's like literally all shades and colors, all sorts of weird stuff going on. It doesn't feel monocultural at all. You know, it's pretty dynamic and exciting. And so anyway, maybe maybe talk about that for a second. I, I don't know that most people outside Israel realize quite how, how diverse in all senses of the word Israel really is. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, you, you can take a I don't normally like this um, this description, but it, it's useful on some level. So, you know, uh, about 80 ish percent of the country is is what you call uh, Jewish. And 20% of the country is Arab, Christian, and uh, and Muslim. Uh, among the Jews who live here, people have come from all corners of the uh, earth, uh, you know, from Western society, United States, Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, those are obviously not all the same. Uh, the North, North Africa, uh, the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, uh, Iran, Turkey. Um, we have uh, Jews who've come from, from India, uh, South Africa and you know and Ethiopia and so uh, you have a wide variety of people who have come from all over the planet you know where Jews have been in exile for two thousand years and turned up here you know people take on it's just nature of life many of the cultures and rituals and 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 social covenants of their host societies even if they are different and so you've got this uh, giant mosaic uh, of people here. Uh, both Jews and and Arabs um, of different religions, and then within the religion uh, of different uh, levels of uh, of practice. And so, you know, broadly speaking, there are less there are less uh, what I would call uh, uh, everyone in Israel basically is Orthodox. You know, you don't have the same kind of denominational structure you have in the United States of Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Most of Israel is Orthodox, um, and they're either Orthodox, secular, or Orthodox practicing religious, um, which is kind of a, a situation you don't have outside of Israel because the, the, the language, the culture, the calendar enables you to be, you know, part of it without having necessarily the ritual practice. Uh, that's actually the topic of my first book uh, on the book of Esther. Um, and so uh, it's a super diverse society. And because it's a bit of a society without a filter, uh, so people are pretty, uh, how should I say, direct about what they think. And so, you know, the tones are generally loud, um, but, you know, people tell you what they think and they'll tell you back what, you know, what you don't think. And uh, but it enables a what I would call a pretty robust uh, debate and discussion in kind of you know old style uh, liberal liberal terms. I, I used to joke uh, with people who came here and said, you know, everybody is, is yelling and is so in your face here. And I, I always used to say that you need to be worried in Israel when people are not yelling at you because it means they don't care. Um, and the reason they yell is because they care. And uh, I find that amazing. One of the things I've been, I've been 
uh, talking about on college campuses as I've gone around talking about the book, and this is about this empowerment responsibility economy, there is a certain esprit de corps in this country, a lot of which comes out of the mandatory military service, and some of it comes out of a shared history and a shared story, uh, which the biblical narrative, by the way, enables. And um, people are, are there for each other, both in times of need, whether it's you have a baby or there's a war going on, um, and in other times. And I'll just give an example. I chair an organization here, which is the largest volunteer organization in Israel. And what it does is it brings people to protect farmers and ranchers from agricultural terrorism and agricultural theft and turns up to help plant and, and reap uh, the, the crops, you know, pick the crops. When COVID hit and we couldn't get foreign workers, which, by the way, almost every agricultural economy relies on from the UK to Florida to, you know, California um, and Israel. Um, so we had 40,000 volunteers turn up during COVID to go pick crops gratis for the most part. And, uh, you know, to make sure that there was enough food, et cetera. And I think that's just an unbelievable kind of esprit de corps uh, that's, that's built in this society. And people who agree and disagree on many other topics will just turn up. No, it's funny. I mean, it's, I, I mean, I almost mentally associate it with the sort of kibbutz mentality of everyone pulling together, although it's. Am I the only one who lost Antonio? Um, Antonio, we lost you for a second there. Can, can you hear me? Oh, there you are. Sorry. Now I do. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, so that's, that's interesting. And yeah, I mean, the forced conscription thing, I can definitely see how that creates uh, this breed of core. And then, and then I think the, the critical thing is the shared narrative, which is one thing, by the way, that I lament in the United States. The, the, the narrative is definitely one that is it's not fraying, it's frayed. It's completely disjunct. Um, and um, yeah, anyhow, I don't want to get too depressing, but. I think the U.S. needs to reinstitute national service for its work. <laughs> right now, many people have proposed that. Everybody, everybody from William F. Buckley um, to lots of people have actually done it. But what, what would they do, right? Like, like professional militaries don't need millions of people. This country doesn't need. So what would they do, right? Um, well, you know, they could go in and rebuild schools in disadvantaged neighborhoods and go in and teach. And, you know, they could we do public works projects. Um, there's a million things. So, by the way, they yeah. could volunteer in the police. I know people want to defund the police and everything, but the police could use some civilian support. And... Uh, you know, go volunteer in the police. We could use that. No, it's funny. I <laughs> just random anecdote, but I, I used to live out in the Northwest in this little island, Northwest of Seattle and um, islands called the San Juans. And there's the highest peak there, which is on my island. There's this beautiful tower at the top of it. And it was built by the Civilian uh, Conservation Corps, the CCCC, which in the 30s did exactly what we just said, right? It was the depression. And, you know, you don't want idle youth just sitting around without jobs. It's just, that's never good. Right. And so tens of maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans were just paid like a stipend, not much, but just to go and build and repair things all over the country is a massive success. But again, it's very difficult to imagine that right now. But maybe I'm maybe I'm being pessimist. I had this notion I was thinking about that, um, you know, with the whatever many trillions of dollars they're doing and kind of build back better or whatever yeah. that is, um, <laughs> yes. that if, if we just if we just did national service. Uh, we could actually lower the bill of that uh, pretty significantly. And at the same time, build connections throughout society, mutually respectable connections, because people would see other people, which we don't enough right now. I was thinking about that. By the way, a word about better, just in the context of Hanukkah. 
uh, I think about this a bunch. In, in, at Aleph, our, our venture capital fund, our motto is different is better than better. When you do things that are better, nobody gets inspired. When you do things that are different, people get inspired. And I think that's really fundamental to kind of where we're at in society right now. Um, doing something differently, and I think, by the way, that is the ethos of Silicon Valley uh, over many years. Doing things different moves society forward. Doing things better doesn't get us going uh, that much. And I worry about that notion. And it goes back to the Hanukkah notion again of of better is still, it's, it's, it's better than mediocre, but it ain't inspiring to say the least. Um, yeah, I mean, to your point about the infrastructure thing, I mean, yeah, it's what, over a, billion, over a trillion dollars, so it's over 5% of GDP. Um, and um, yeah, <laughs> we'll see if uh, the Hanukkah and can actually get better. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm actually I'm going from after this call. I'm going to give a a talk at a banking conference uh, uh, in Israel. And one of my topics is the GDP is a bad measure of society and uh, of societal economic growth. And it's not just the GDP is a bad measure. It's it's not unique enough, particularly in modern times when we're talking about a, uh, a, a you know a, a knowledge economy. And one of the topics I, I plan to talk about, which relates to my book on Leviticus, is if we really believe in this thing called the responsibility economy, one of the things we need to be measuring is the human beings in it, not just the output. So how many people have skills that are translatable in the 21st century? What is the rate of growth of people in the economy with skills for the 21st century? That's not a measure of GDP, but it is a measure of investment output into the most important uh, creator in the 21st century economy, which is the human being. In the 20th century, we had factories, right? So we can look at how much investment in capital goods, et cetera. Today, that, you know, the modern notion of the capital good, quote unquote, is the human being. And uh, we, we don't measure that. And it's quite stunning. That's, that's the measure of future output. Can we pay back a trillion dollars? Well, hell, I don't know. How many people will work in the knowledge economy? Um, good question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a more forward-looking KPI to get wonky about it. But I guess, how would you measure that? Because it's so difficult, like, even when it comes to, like, you know, what do you teach your kids so that they're productive members of society 20 years from now? Even that's not clear. So how would you measure it today, whether the youth are actually going to be productive or not, other than something like GDP or average income or something? Like, how, how would you do that? Um, by the way, for what it's worth, I, I would teach my kids uh, biblical studies and how to think. Uh, one is for the timeless principles of it. And second of all, kind of Talmudic reading is very important for how to think. That's what I would teach my kids. <clears throat> but on top of that, you know, they need exposure to a wide variety of things early in their life. You know, everything from, from reading and writing, and I think writing is an underappreciated skill uh, in modern society. Public speaking, underappreciated skill in modern society. You know, and then, you know, math and problem solving uh, are like kind of critical things. And, um, you know, we, we never ask kids to get up and speak publicly. My wife always jokes, and Antonio, I've invited you in the past, but you're invited to our Sabbath table when you get to Israel. But my wife always jokes that you know, if we have 20 people on our Sabbath table, our kids get introduced to public speaking every Friday night and you know, Sabbath afternoon because they have to speak in front of 20 people. And you know, I think it's a valuable skill in you know, storytelling and speaking publicly during this time. And so we got to look at these things. What are we teaching kids in, uh, in their early era that gives them a, a wide range of tools to do self-learning and, you know, promote themselves and, and talk about things articulately. Um, those are 21st century skills. You're not just operating a machine. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, public speaking, I mean, pitching skills are definitely important. I mean, there's definitely a difference between societies that emphasize social charisma, right? I mean, it's, it's not the only thing because it can be a little frivolous and superficial too. But when coupled sure. with actual thinking, yeah. that's the that's the devastating combo, right? Um, that you want. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you I, know, I think we also don't ask people and kids to struggle anymore with the hard text. You know, one of the things is, you know, I learned in the Talmud, still do, you know, Aramaic is a, is a, is a non-extant language, basically, unless you talk to Nassim Talib. Oh. Hey, um, are you still there? So, yep. Yeah, I am. Okay. So, uh, you know, Aramaic is not an extant language, but when you struggle with an Aramaic text, you struggle with a biblical text and try to understand the context or the classics, by the way, um, I think it's valuable to try to understand what other societies were, you know, were dealing with. It forces you to think in, a, in, a, in a, an out-of-modern-context way um, and compare and contrast. And I think that's got a lot of value. Oh, no, I agree. I mean, my favorite readings when I was younger was, yeah, either biblical texts or epic poetry or things that were completely out of my what seems to me very provincial and backwards sort of 90s Miami Cuban childhood. But again, I think, um, yeah, I, I think the internet has done many things <laughs> to the human intellectual world. But one thing is that it's focused us into sort of the, what I call the eternal present, what I and others call the eternal present, which is, um, you know, the sort of, the bigger perspective. Again, I think, as I think you're saying, right the ability to actually read these texts and make sense of them is also your ability to actually meet somebody from a context completely i mean if you can interpret gilgamesh or again you know the story of maccabees outside of your own sort of twitter-laden context that means you can probably understand lots of cultural contexts that are outside of your actual everyday context and i yeah not a lot of modern society actually forces us to do that um absolutely yeah well 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 said yeah. We need more of that. No, I. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So let's see. I did I actually configure the room to actually allow people to ask questions? Because usually you have people who kind of come up. I'm not sure if I did, but if anyone actually wants to come up and ask Michael a question, by all means, gesticulate or um, let me know. Uh, unless Michael's completely averse to getting asked questions, but being Israeli, I doubt that's true. By the way, I'm very impressed that you actually so. You, you write first in Hebrew, and then either you or somebody else translates. You don't write. You don't write in, in English first. I wrote in Hebrew first because I, I find it easier to write on biblical topics in Hebrew, and my Hebrew is fluent. It has a very heavy American accent, but it's fluent. Um, and, uh, then somebody else translates, and I read. Wow, that's amazing. So do, I see. So when so it's funny. So I I'm. So I was raised like fully bilingual. Cubans had Spanish schools because everyone's going to go back when Fidel died. Was well, that didn't happen, and then I became fluent in. It's definitely true that, like, your brain goes certain. When when you're in certain languages, and it's fascinating to me that you think biblically in Hebrew. Um, that's amazing. Um, but, but yet Hebrew is your everyday language. Like you talk to, uh, you know, your taxi driver, your kids, whatever in Hebrew, it's not just uh, a liturgical language or uh, a scholarly language. No, I, I talk to my kids in English and I talk to the taxi driver in Hebrew and you know, the tech business in Israel is for the most part conducted in English. Um, although there is Hebrew and uh, I can speak tech in Hebrew because it has so many English words transliterated. 
Um, but uh, no, yeah, half of my life is in Hebrew and half of it's in English. Interesting. Well, I'm glad to hear about the te- tech being in English because my Hebrew is like less than terrible. And I, I, I'd love to check out the tech scene when I, when I go there next year. Um, so it's interesting to, to hear that. But can I ask you a random Everyone's read your, everyone's read your book. It's in fact sitting in front of me on my, on my desk. I, keep in front. I have a bunch of books I keep in front of me. Chaos Monkeys is one of them. Oh, dude, thank you, Michael. That's very flattering. Um, that's, that makes me, that pleases me. So now that I've got you on the, on, on the call and, you know, you're a prominent Israeli VC, I, I mean, I have my theories, but I just want to ask you the question. You probably get this question a lot. You know, the whole startup nation thing, right? Like, why is it that Israel manages to produce more tech IPOs than, like, the entire EU year after year? I mean, if you were to chalk it up to, like, one or two things, what, what is it? Yeah, first of all, the EU is growing. Um, but it's, in my view, it's, it's two things. One is uh, the military, in particular the technology units of the military, force you to push the envelope and encourage you to take initiative. It's, it's the least non-hierarchical, hierarchical military, I think, on the planet. And so it really encourages you to take initiative and, and almost break things uh, to try to figure figure stuff out. And because it's a matter of life and death, um, you got to get right. And I think that's that's valuable. I think the second thing is is that the whole country is like a startup. Right? It's only been around 73 years, and we're still building it. I, I often say that Israel is still a project in the making, um, and you should come join the project because uh, there's a lot to do here. And uh, so you kind of feel like you're building all the time. And so a startup is just another form of building the country uh, in doing that. I think those are the two main things. And then there's, you know, a bunch of others, which is people are kind of eternally dissatisfied with the present and are trying to fix it. And, uh, you know, that's what entrepreneurship is about. And, you know, obviously there's high proficiency in, in math and sciences here. And there have always been good universities here since the founding of the state. And now we got a big challenge. we got to bring more people into this tech economy because the one thing we don't have is people. Um, massive shortage of people. There's less than 10 million people in the country. And uh, we, need to, we need to bring more people into this economy. Only about 330,000 work in the tech economy. we got a goal to double it in the next five years. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't realize that uh, Israel was so understaffed. <laughs> What's the tech neon doing? If not uh, training more engineers, but I, I can see that you're, you're, I mean, Tel Aviv is one of the biggest startup ecosystems in the world. And as you said, the entire country just isn't that big. Um, yeah. So Israel definitely punches above its weight. So, okay, here's another theory while we're being slightly politically incorrect, Michael, that, you know, it's Israel, again, I'm seeing it from the outside and, and I hope to get to know it more next year. Um, but it, it's interesting to me. I mean, you, you see many things going kind of wrong in the West, right? And I don't want to, have this litany of problems, but everything from political cohesion to birth rates, I mean, it's just, it's all going south, right? But in Israel, that seems to be less the case, right? Birth rates are healthy, there's political cohesion, the response to COVID was actually very impressive. Um, so what what do you chalk up to sort of Israeli success recently too? Like, is it is it actually the military? Is it the, the binding agent of the religion? Is it being perpetually at war? What What, what is it? I think it's a combination of things, but the two most important characteristics I would describe is optimism and resilience. So resilience is bred out of necessity. Optimism is a state of mind and being. And I think uh, resilience, because of the, the military conflicts, because of a society that's come together from the four corners of the earth, uh, it has a lot of difference in it, um, has bred a lot of resilience. You know, 
people who didn't grow up here with a lot, you know, in the previous generation. It's become a wealthier, wealthier economy now, but it certainly wasn't 40, 50 years ago. And, uh, and it's still an immigrant economy. We have a lot of immigrants coming every year. And I think the, all that breeds resilience. Um, and then, you know, required military service breeds resilience as well. And the second thing is, I think Judaism as a whole, and Israel in particular, is an optimistic religion about the future. And being optimistic about the future causes a number of things. Number one, it causes you to have children because you're optimistic about the future. Uh, you see all these people, you know, worried about climate change, don't want to have kids for some reason. And, you know, because pessimism is correlated with not having children. And having children causes you also to renew your thinking because children challenge you. It also causes you to love somebody else because it's your child and all your children are different. I have eight myself. Trust me, they're all different. And so uh, you have to love different people. Um, and in general, I want to build a better future for my kids, so I'm optimistic about that. And those are, I think, two core national character traits that make Israel punch above its weight. I think the COVID reaction, for what it's worth, has been better than most, by the way, far better than most. But I think it's driven out of certain practicality. And, you know, like I like to say, we're pretty good at war. And COVID's a war on some level um, that you decide how you're fighting it. Um, is this risk management? Is this uncertainty? Whatever it is. But we're pretty good at these drills. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned the, the recent wealth thing. I was looking at um, Israel's GDP per capita is like super high these days. It's like, I mean, it's well above the EU average and it's higher than even relatively high. I mean, it's 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 higher than the large EU country. It's not higher than, say, Liechtenstein, but that's hardly a representative country. So, yeah, Israel's, at least on an average basis, doing very well now. But one thing I remember from when I was there in 2005 or six was that, um, I mean, again, it was a well-off country, but there are certainly aspects of it that was a little rough on the edges, right? You can tell that people just also, I think they, they tended to care less about the sort of finaries of life. Um, and so it was, I think that's fair. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, they just didn't give a shit about it. Like if something was kind of like broken or rough, like, yeah, it just doesn't, there's other things that matter more. Um, but I'm guessing if I went back now, it would probably be very, probably very different. Um, uh, yeah, it's gotten better. You know, what I'd like to say is that so many things are broken here that people have to fix it. That's why we have so many entrepreneurs, you know, you get to, uh, <laughs> You have to drop your kids off at kindergarten and the teacher's not there. Okay, who's volunteering around the kindergarten today? Because it's broken. And then, the, you know, the bus system doesn't work to get to work. So you got to fix things all the time. Like I say, join the project. It's valuable. Right, right. No, no. It's it's funny. Israelis always struck me as very proactive people. Like something was fucked up and everyone would just like jump into gear and kind of do something about it and fix it. Well, I think in this day and age, I mean, I think the United States was kind of like that at some point. But nowadays, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm slightly more pessimistic to, to, to be contrasted with your with your optimism. Um, so cool. Well, we're coming up on almost an hour. Um, I don't know, Michael, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Or is I got to go talk to a group of bankers. Yeah. You know, I'll mention one last thing to finish. Um, I got to talk to these bankers here. This has been more interesting, I guess. Uh, the, you know, the, the book, uh, per se, uh, is about this notion of the economy, innovation and timeless principles. And I think we probably have a bunch of tech people on, uh, on here. And there's so much good that can come out of the work people are doing uh, in tech in driving society forward that it's important, uh, you know, to kind of spread this blessing uh, to as many people as possible and bring them on the boat. And uh, I, when I often talk to college audience, I tell them that, you know, if you're in Princeton or, or Penn or wherever you're like in the lucky 1% of society, we need to strap four or five people on our shoulders and bring them into the 21st century. And unfortunately, and it's not their fault, the government is not going to do this. So wait and wait for them. 
waiting around for them doesn't help anyone. And so I think we're moving into an era where it's the civic responsibility uh, of people, you know, to help move others from their tribe or outside their tribe into the 21st century. Um, and by doing that, we'll all be in a better spot in, you know, in a couple of decades. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's, again, it's, um, I think I said this in either my white Judaism or one of the other posts that like, there's so few political factions in the West that actually have like a generative vision of the future. And I think Israel is one of those few exceptions because again, it's like you said, it's a national project still in the making, right? Like it's not just like startup nation, like, Oh, Israel has good startups. Like, no, 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 you don't get it. Like the entire country is a startup still. Right. And um, yeah. And it's like, it's amazing to think about it. Well, anyhow, um, I look forward to, uh, to spending time there next year. As, as, um, when they lift the travel restrictions again, which is, it's funny, they've been together for months and I was just like, Oh my God, finally lifted. And then boom, they're down again. But I'm, I'm guessing they'll be lifted. So I'll probably see you in either. I think okay, so. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully I think so. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I think so. You know, I was just going to say thank you for having me on this and I'll reciprocate by having you for uh, Shabbat or Sabbath dinner and anyone on who's listening on call in here. Uh, you're welcome. Also. I, I will definitely accept your Shabbat invite, um, Michael. Thank you. And I didn't know you had eight kids. My God. Wow. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> what an amazing wife. <laughs> Indeed. I, it's how you manage to actually have your career and also have eight kids. I think in the U.S. that would be considered just impossible. But again, um, like you said, optimism, I think, um, makes it possible. So thanks, thanks for being on my show. And let's see. I don't see anybody in the caller queue. So we'll probably cut it off there. And um, like I said, Michael, I, the, so the great thing about Colin is that unlike Clubhouse, there's actually a shareable link. And so it's like a form of podcast. And so I'll, I'll share the link right after the show ends um, show and, and people can listen to it whenever or you can share it or as the case may be. So, again, thanks, Michael. And um, the book is Tree of Life and Prosperity, which is out in English and is being very well reviewed on Amazon. I noticed I saw your average review number is super high, higher than Chaos Monkeys, by the way. And um, again, thanks for spending time here. And I look forward to the other uh, four volumes that are coming out soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Michael. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye.